This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Patrick Riley. Today I'm speaking with Gabriel Winant about his book, The Next Shift, The Fall of Industry and the Rise of Healthcare in Rust Belt America out in March 2021 with Harvard University Press. The book explains how the social reproductive labor sustaining the U.S.'s industrial economy was institutionalized in response to steelworker layoffs, aging, and sickness beginning in the 1960s and intensifying in the 70s and 80s. The result was a recomposition of the American working class, from a predominantly white male industrial one to a meagerly paid and socially devalued pool of care workers comprised mostly of women, and especially women of color. The book then urges us to see that neoliberalism's insecure labor regime is not a reversion to an earlier period of inequality, but a consequence of mid-century welfare policy and the partial security it offered, as well as the race and gender hierarchies it remade. Thanks for joining us, Gabe. Thanks for having me. Nice to be here. Could you begin by speaking about what drew you to this project? Yeah, absolutely. You know, uh, I began thinking about this project when I started graduate school in about 20, in 2010. Um, and I had grown up in Philadelphia. I, I did my PhD at Yale, Philly, New Haven, many other cities besides them that are similar across the Northeast and Midwest have a story that they tell about themselves and about their uh, post-industrial recoveries over the last several decades, uh, often kind of encapsulated in the in the phrase "eds and meds," right? that's education and medicine. Uh, but that you know the, this new economic sector has emerged, um, driven by highly educated. The story goes right, driven by highly uh, attracting highly educated young workers to uh, often technologically intensive uh, sort of innovative fields of. of economic activity. This is the source of economic recovery for cities that were devastated in the 70s and 80s. Uh, And that was a story that was, I think, in very wide circulation, uh, say, 10, 15, 20 years ago. At the same time, obviously, uh, and much better known, there's been, you know, some dawning awareness over the from the end of the 90s, I would say, I often date it to uh, Barbara Ehrenreich's nickel and dimes up through the 2008 crisis of the worsening of social inequality, right? That that period of about 10 years from the late 90s to the late 2000s was when we generally kind of began to register in the social sciences and journalism and public discourse that the United States was experiencing some significant uh, you know, bifurcation in terms of uh, economic and social fortunes. And, uh, you know, living in, growing up in Philly, living in New Haven, you can kind of look around and see that there's actually a relationship between these two stories, uh, right? That the Eds and Meds economy, uh, you know, the people who are attached in some way to it, getting their living from it, set in motion by it, you know, they're not all uh, computer programmers and doctors and, uh, 
you know, high tech workers of different kinds, right? There's huge numbers of low wage workers in this, in, in the industries that are kind of associated with post-industrial urban recovery. Uh, so it seemed to me that there was some story about social inequality that had to be told that uh, had something to say about wh- what kinds of new jobs exist now, what the service economy actually is, where it came from, and that we shouldn't allow it to be naturalized, that there is some kind of sequence from manufacturing to service that looks a certain way and has to, has to develop along a certain path uh, that we actually have to understand historically what the real relationship between these two is. So that was the kind of origins of the project initially. Thank you. That's helpful. I was wondering, uh, in particular, you know, you, you you're critical of this uh, new Gilded Age kind of. I, I guess it's 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 a little too informal to call it a thesis, but kind of a notion that appears in historiography and journalism, and even you know some kind of, I guess, leftist analysis. I know Samir Amin in two thousand. Uh, wrote something in the monthly review about uh, c- comparing, you know, the, the the turn of the 19th century to the turn of the 20th century. So it's it shown up in a lot of places with more or less sophistication, I guess. And I'm wondering if that kind of w- were you always bristling against that idea, or did that come along later as you were kind of in the process that you just described? Well, that I think developed as I as I kind of tried to investigate the origins of uh, service sector labor markets. You know, it the thing that I came to understand and it became really important to the argument of the book is that the institutional structure of employment in a, you know essentially in our own time or you know in the post industrial period is determined in important ways by the organization of the welfare state during the New Deal and its immediate aftermath in the 30s, 40s, and 50s. Um, And what that means is that it doesn't make sense to associate inequality and labor market inequality in particular with some kind of reversion to a pre-New Deal uh, situation, right? That actually what we're living with is kind of the, the ruins and legacies of the moment of sort of liberal state building in the middle of the 20th century. And, you know, this is significant, I think, in various ways. There's political significance to this in terms of how we think of the dynamic of American politics developing over time. Is it kind of like an oscillation between liberalism and conservatism, you know, expansive state capacity versus laissez-faire? I think we often tend to slip into thinking of it that way, uh, going back at least to Schlesinger, if not if not further back. Um I could just say Schlesinger, right? Because this is a podcast for historians. Absolutely. Okay. Um, and, uh, you know, history, in my view, doesn't oscillate. It is cumulative, you know, and things that happen uh, embed themselves in uh, the physical, you know, the physical stock of capital and the capacities and shapes of institutions in ways that uh, a change in which party is in power doesn't necessarily override. And it seems to me that we have tended to conflate the transition from Democratic Party hegemony between the 30s and the 60s to Republican Party hegemony in the from, you know, beginning in the late 70s or 80s, more or less to the present, um, 
that that transition, that realignment process, we tend to conflate with a transition from uh, what we might call a kind of more socially equal and compressed society or wage structure. It's complicated to think about it in terms of more or less equal, but for the time being, we can say that um, to a, a more unequal one recently, right? And that, you know, Democrats are in power, you have an equal society, a relatively more equal society, Republicans are in power, you have a, a, a less equal one. And uh, I think that's a mistake to make that conflation um, once we understand the kind of deep interrelations between inequality today and institutional structures developed by liberals in many cases. Uh, you know, I think the final point I'll make about this is that historiographically, I think that uh, the 1980s and to some extent the 1990s and the defeat of liberalism caused many historians quite understandably, and if I had been a historian then, I'm sure I would have done this too, to kind of rally to the defense of, li- of this very same forms of liberalism that they had made their careers critiquing. I think here, for example, of the great labor historian and real important mentor of mine, Nelson Lichtenstein, um, whose first book, Labor's War at Home, uh, is a denunciation of the New Deal during the war and its, re- its labor policy during the war. And, you know, later in his career, um, he basically renounced his first book because he said, actually, that was the best thing we're ever going to get. Uh, and we'd be lucky to go back to that. Um, and, you know, I think that the effects of the rise of the right on the historical profession have led us to uh, rally to the defense of the New Deal and of mid-century liberalism for understandable reasons that I don't think wrong exactly. But I now think, you know, more years have gone by and it makes sense for us to, again, reassess that legacy and try to figure out what we gain by um, defending it with our scholarship in that way and what ways we can kind of move beyond it or, you know, reperiodize it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, I, th- I think you're right. I was reading for the first time Lichtenstein's essay in Rise and Fall of the New Deal Order. And that in that piece and other ones, you really get a sense of, you know, people in that period knowing the kind of partiality of the security, the partiality and the unevenness of the security that the New Deal conferred. And then, you know, you know, cut to cut cut to the kind of some of the works that you're critically engaging with in your footnotes, and it seems like it it, it seems like the your kind of um, the your foils aren't really taking that up in the way that you know one would think that like maybe a labor historian in twenty you know in the twenty tens would, um, and so I think that that's. Um, the the political landscape's impact on the historiography definitely goes a long way to explaining that, I guess, um, maybe not an erasure, but kind of d- downplaying the criticism. Yeah. Well, and, I, sorry, can I jump in? No, of uh, course. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, and like I said, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't particularly mean it as a criticism of, you know, figures like Nelson, who I, like I say, I think, you know, I would have done the same thing in his shoes. Mm-hmm. I just think it's important to, as historians, always be assessing our own historical moment and how we relate to it. And I'm not sure we're in the same moment now that we were 20 years ago or something like that. Uh, But the other thing I would say is that in the book, I'm trying to also um, 
make a kind of a theoretical inter, uh, I don't know about intervention, but uh, to make a theoretical move um, about how we think of state power and its relationship to social history. And that's to try to incorporate uh, Foucault basically into political economy and social history. And it seems to me that, you know, there was a lot of difficulty around the set of questions raised by the cultural turn and their relationship to social history and political economy uh, a generation ago. And generally, I think a lot of uh, the field of basically labor history or labor and social history split around this question in different ways. Many people became much more uh, institutionalist um, right, and became kind of critical political historians of one kind or another, and others became cultural historians. Um, and generally, what that one effect of that split, as I see it, has been that uh, it's made it harder to, you know, simultaneously, uh, you know, recognize the importance and victories of mid-century liberalism and the movements that powered it and were associated with it and also to criticize them because, and it's made it harder because um, if you don't really want to deal with Foucault in any way, then what happens is you think of state power as being, you know, good or bad, as opposed to sort of productive and generative. And part of what the book is, you know, without necessarily being good or bad in a simple way. Um, And part of what the book is trying to do is to show how the welfare state, which is something that I believe in and should be expanded, um, nonetheless, has to be understood historically as a force that produces subjects in, in, you know, historically specific ways produces populations in historically specific shapes. And that is fundamental to its political effects. That's not to say I think Medicare is bad or Medicaid is bad. It's just that, uh, you know, Medicare and Medicaid produce certain kinds of welfare state subjectivity um, and with real identifiable material consequence. And I think that kind of approach methodologically has often been mistaken as um, saying, that means that we shouldn't, you know, that we shouldn't have Medicare or something like that. So the book, I think, also is kind of making a wager that enough time has gone by since the kind of, let's say, theory wars of the 1990s, that it's possible actually to kind of work out some of the impasses that developed then. Yeah, I mean, uh, regarding the split in labor history, I mean, is your sense that those those two camps are just kind of talking past past each other because I was trying to um I was trying to relate what you're doing to some of the other books that are cre- uh, analyzing the post-war liberalism's creation and exacerbation of social inequality um you know on the axes of race gender sexuality etc and uh you know they a lot of these books focus on policy and institutional change in, in housing, welfare, uh, the expansion of the carceral state. And I was just curious why there had been a lack of institutionalist or materialist analysis of the, your particular historical like uh, problem or question. And 
it could be that bifurcation is is one reason and you know partially that's the result of just a different theory of history prevailing within a discipline or prevailing within um the the circles of people who get published but also i think re- related to that but separate is that it's just in my opinion more difficult to reconstruct institutional change than it is to and i'm perhaps i'm being crude here but then it is to like pick out a bunch of historical discourse and unpack it like you're watching some kind of debate um and i'm i'm wondering if you think that those two things like the theory of change and then the actual method are like are they the same thing or are they separate or and related or what's their relationship there yeah i mean i don't know that i have a total answer to this and i also um you know, I don't think that it's possible for anyone to simply resolve all these, uh, you know, dilemmas in their own work. So a lot of the work I really admire that I think has done uh, a really good job of more or less internalizing um, some of the contradictions of liberalism into its approach and sort of interrogating it effectively. I, you were sort of alluding to this, something like Margot Candidate's The Straight State, Kiangi Yamada-Taylor's book, Race for Profit. Um, you know, a lot of the literature around, uh, I mean, often feminist, uh, feminist historiography, like Alice Kessler Harris's in pursuit of equity, um, a lot of the literature on the kind of, uh, contradictions and exclusions of the post-war liberal state, um, I think is quite effective at showing how institutions work in ways that, as you say, are quite difficult to do. I think that What's hard about doing that, though, in particular, is then, or what I've wished for more of, I'll say, is uh, linking those histories of institutions and the ways in which they produce certain kinds of citizenship, certain kinds of subjectivity, um, you know, sort the population differentially, how to link that to uh, a larger account of historical change, right? Um, so, you know, for example, to talk about Margaret Kennedy's book, which I think is a fabulous book and was really formative for me. Um, and I finished it and I thought, like, I learned a ton from this. Why did this happen though? And what did it lead to? Um, you know, the story of, you know, exp- the expanding administrative state becoming increasingly interested in and able to produ- uh, produce heterosexuality she shows how it happened really effectively. Um, and, you know, I mean, maybe this is just a kind of like uh, defaulting to a certain kind of Marxist problematic, but for the question I left, I thought about finishing that book and that informed, you know, my, my thinking about my own book was why, right? Why, why does the state become invested in producing the population in a certain way? And that returns us to the, the kind of impasse uh that we were talking about a minute ago in terms of, you know, I think the ways in which historians who can tell, who want to and are able to tell a story about um, sort of the engines driving historical change at, you know, uh, in, in materialist ways, basically, are not really enga- bothering to engage with the kinds of questions that like Margaret Kennedy is, is engaging with. 
that's an overgeneralization. And, you know, I, I, now that I'm saying it, I'm thinking of many, many exceptions to that. <laughs> um, nonetheless, it's, it's, that, that's, the, that's the kind of methodological project that the book was trying to take on, right? What would it mean to try to tell a story of uh, historical change at, at uh, you know, an economic level, ultimately, as, as, as a kind of motor of transformation, while also showing really, you know, as fully as I'm able to, how that's not simply a kind of economic determinism, right? But it's playing out through in through the mediations of institutions and the structure of daily life and the organization of the family and the production of the population. Um, so that we can understand the production of subjectivity as being a fundamental moment of a history that's still driven in some way by the logic of capital. And so the, you know, that's, that's the kind of theoretical move that the book is trying to make, right? That uh, ultimately like uh, the, the engine of change of this book is economic, right? It's about deindustrialization and the consequences of deindustrialization, but that change doesn't just flow simply from A to B, you know, deindustrialization happens and it gives you the outcomes that the book talks about. It flows through a whole set of mediations um, through state institutions and struggles over state institutions, through the family and the production of the family and the production of certain kinds of subjectivity within the family and within the workplace, um, through, you know, insurance systems and we can get into this, but uh, that's what the book is trying to do methodologically. Yeah, and I mean, I think, and you, you just mentioned this, but f- fitting, and you, you lived it because the, the, the book apparently is, is done. Um, um, it's difficult to stuff all of that into one research project. And there are, um, you know, I think Canada's book and others are examples that of, of works that do do kind of one side of it very effectively and then leave outstanding questions and that i think brings me to the question of sources and defining and limiting the scope of a project when you know obviously uh, there are there are time constraints at every level of kind of every stage of of academic production and I'm wondering if you could speak a little bit about that because, you know, you're, you, you use a variety of union community organization and company records and what were the challenges or change and changes within the scope of the research over time? Was, was your source base always this diverse or did you, did you begin with kind of a narrower line or kind of a set of sources and then you you kind of realized you had to expand. And then obviously once you were, once you were moving elsewhere and kind of going to these different places, you have to draw the boundaries somewhere. So can you, can you speak to that tension? Yeah, absolutely. Well, first of all, um, you know, Margaret Candidates, a straight state, Nelson Lichtenstein's uh, labor's war at home. Alice Kessler Harris is in pursuit of equity. I think those are the three books I've mentioned so far and they're all national in scope, right? And that's an ambition that I really, admire and find amazing and uh, could not conceive for myself of how to replicate. Um, For a moment, I thought in terms of geographical scope, maybe I could write about the Rust Belt as a unit, Uh, but even that became too much for me uh, to actually conceptualize. And so I decided I was just going to pick a place. 
Um, and I picked Pittsburgh because the sources were good. Uh, I mean, that's the real answer. And the, the sources were good because it's been a very heavily studied city for over a century now since it embodied the second industrial transfer uh, revolution, the second industrial revolution so thoroughly and the transformations of that were so visible there. Uh, the Pittsburgh survey uh, conducted by the Russell Sage Foundation in the early 20th century is a classic example of this. Uh, social scientists have been you know, trying to understand industrial capitalism and the society, the society that results from it through Pittsburgh for a long time and that has generated an archive. Um, as well as, you know, as you say, the kind of organizations themselves that whether, you know, business and labor and nonprofit and so on that kind of contest or shape industrial capitalism. Um, so, you know, the main pro main challenge that I had in terms of sourcing this project was, um, I guess there were two that I would say. The first is that the second half of the book is about the healthcare industry and, uh, you know, mainly you can't really get, or at least I couldn't really get much in the way of um, actual like hospital and nursing home archives from the second, you know, from the later part of the 20th century. Mm -hmm. And that was not really a directly available type of source for me. Um, I have a lot of material from uh, regulators and policymakers who are concerned with the healthcare industry and engaging in some way with the healthcare industry. But, um, you know, there's no, or almost no, there's a tiny bit, but almost no, uh, you know, hospital papers or something in, in this book, although it's in some way a book about hospitals. Uh, the second real challenge was that, um, you know, a lot of the archival record generated about uh, Pittsburgh and the processes in Pittsburgh that I was interested in are pretty heavily about white people. Um, mm -hmm. And that's, you know, in part because Pittsburgh is relatively unusual in its composition in terms of race. Uh, it's for about a century now, um, it's been, or nearly a century, it's been uh, about 70% white and 25% black and, you know, 5% other. Um, and that's basically because there wasn't really that much of a second great migration to Pittsburgh um, in the, you know, 40s and 50s and 60s. Uh, and mm -hmm. The steel industry wasn't really growing anymore. And so uh, it didn't become as heavily African-American of a population as Philadelphia or Cleveland or Chicago or something. Um, Black Pittsburgh was always less powerful for that reason and was less, you know, was just became less of a matter of kind of uh, object of, uh, you know, political and social and, uh, you know, social scientific concern. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I had to, you know, try to, deal with that fact and how I sourced the project, um, given how much it's about, in particular in its later chapters, it's about black workers experience. So I wound up doing a lot of oral histories to try to get around that basically, um, that even if, uh, the sources I wanted were not representative of who I wanted the book to be about, for example, let me say something more specific. Um, the second chapter, which is about the working class household really in the fifties and sixties, um, and the kind of, economy, the infinite economy of the working class household uh, is largely drawn, that's where the chapter is largely drawn from a single huge collection at Pitt 
called the Women, Ethnicity, and Mental Health uh, Interview Project. It's done in the 70s, really hundreds of really fascinating interviews with these uh, triads of women, um, a grandmother, you know, it would be three, three women across three generations at a single family line, basically. Uh, so the oldest typically is an immigrant from Slovakia or Italy or something, came here in, you know, 1890 or 1910 or whatever. And then it's her daughter and then her daughter. And they interview all three and they have, you know, uh, 225 interviews or something like that that they've done like this. Um, all white. Uh, you know, they were interested in in European immigrant ethnicity and experience. It was the 1970s when that was a kind of new subject of study again for, uh, for the first time in a while. So it was a really valuable source for me. All of the interviewees were white. And so while the chapter is sort of written out of that collection, um, you know, I wanted to uh, find a way to try to supplement that. And, you know, to some degree, oral histories I did could do that. Although, you know, I'm trying to get at the 50s and that's becoming fairly long in the past, fairly far in the past. And I found, um, you know, I mean, I found working class memoirs, different kinds of things, uh, you know, to try to get around that problem, but it's kind of ongoing. It was an ongoing archival challenge for me uh, to deal with. I guess the other thing I would say about it is um, in terms of the, just the construction of the source base is that, and it's a methodological point too, I guess, but I was very committed for reasons that I wasn't initially certain what they really were. And I only came to understand it as I went to writing a history at the level of daily life and for that, you know, interviews, whether my own or archival, uh, were really important. And, but it became increasingly clear to me that the processes I, that I thought actually mattered were not happening at the level of daily life, right? They became visible in daily life. They became visible as people dealt with a, a job loss or, you know, a sickness or an injury or whatever. Um, but they originated at higher levels of mediation in institutions in economic, you know, processes. And so I had to track down, you know, I had to figure out um, whether in some cases corporate archives, in some cases sort of regulators and policymakers, um, you know, how, how to kind of trace that chain of causation all the way through and to really try to link them all up in a kind of convincing way. Um, and I think the project, you know, sometimes effectively and sometimes, you know, maybe with a little bit of vertigo, tries to move between these scales of uh, historical action in basically every chapter in some way. Um, but, you know, the archival source space was not always even enough to do that really smoothly. Yeah, I mean, I think the, yeah, the second chapter on the, the intimate economy of the household, I found that uh, the Women, Ethnicity, and Mental Health Oral uh, History Project to be a really fascinating source and especially just its provenance, like I think the, I think a steel industrialist like um, founded the organization that funded it, uh, funded the research project. So it's you know kind of a classic example of you know someone like a philanthropist investigating a problem that they started. Um, um, Right, and, and also a problem as they recognize it, right? Which are constituting the problem into a form that they can recognize, which also then tells you something about the kind of racial dimensions of it. Mm-hmm. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. 
Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Um, yeah, I mean, what did you find it challenging just on the level of, of writing or even kind of pre-writing? You know, you've got all these examples of people describing, you know, the kind of the, the endless kind of like formless workday uh, uh, at home and you have, you know, your task is to kind of diagram that or assemble it into a mosaic of like a, ho- a household or later in the book, as you mentioned, like a, a hospital labor process. And uh, d- did you find that challenging at all? Yeah. Um, well, yeah, I mean, the... There are a few different kind of parts of that challenge. You know, one, it was important to me both to, um, you know, make the historical subjects accounts of their own lives and their own, you know, understandings of their experiences uh, speak as much as I could, you know. Um, And at the same time to insist that, Right, there's a kind of collective and structurally determined at some level shared experience here such that we can treat, you know, this group of people as undergoing something together, right? Uh, even if they don't all have identical life stories and identical experiences or even identical understandings of what's happening, nonetheless, there are systematic forces that are working their way out through the household. And that means that I can say, okay, you know, uh, not everyone raised kids in exactly the same way or thought about their kids in exactly the same way or parenting in the same way. But nonetheless, parenting has sort of a determinate shape to some degree for this group of people. Um, and, you know, it gradates at the top where, you know, the most secure working class people kind of begin to look kind of middle class. It gradates at the bottom where the least secure ones, particularly black people, uh, you know, t- are kind of always under threat of falling out. Um but there's still a kind of center of gravity. And again and again, across, you know, the different moments of daily family life, you know, making meals, raising kids, you know, attending to kids, doing the laundry, uh, you know, cleaning the house. I mean, that's what this chapter is about. It's just these kinds of moments. And it's arguing that uh, we actually can see, a st- you know, the weight of, uh, you know, the economic structure and its gradual decline on all of these routines. Um, and that re- to do that requires saying, okay, I can't, you know, go through these interviews that I have and find every time that they talk about, uh, you know, child rearing practices or whatever. Um, and, you know, put them all together and start to think about what do they have in common with them and then make that a kind of section of the chapter and so on. And that was challenging to figure out what are the actual moments around which I want to organize this chapter. And it, it changed its structure different times or multiple times as I did that. Um, but, you know, the, uh, I guess, key thing about it for me was that I wanted to show that there was a kind of uh, domestic labor discipline and, you know, a domestic work ethic that 
is being uh, enforced in some ways, struggled over mainly individually. Um, and if that's true, it should be visible in, in some form in almost every arena of the kind of daily routine of the household. Yeah, on that, I mean, on that point, the kind of tr- trying to read um, structural transformation through what's going on in the household. I actually have uh, an empirical question because I was, uh, I was a bit surprised when I read about how familial networks of care were falling apart at, at the precise moment of industrial decline. Because you mentioned earlier in the book that the goal of many working class families was to reproduce their current economic position rather than encourage social mobility yet youth youth emigration because of you know kind of bad employment prospects seems to break with those expectations and that's what that's partially what limited you know household capacity to care for elders in, in this in this moment you know they, they the kids went uh, obviously, there was a fertility uh, decline, as you mentioned, but the kids that were around went south and west and you know, perhaps elsewhere for more employment opportunities, which is straightforward enough. But it's interesting that those familial obligations that, you know, in, in some moments were pretty, um, pretty sticky were broken. Um, yeah, I don't know if I think it's that they were, oh, you mean broken in terms of kids leaving? Yeah, yeah. I, I guess the 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 kind of the obligation wasn't strong enough to for for people to stick around. Of, yeah. of course, you know, I'm sure there are you know any number of conversations that were a variation of like, well, I you know, it, my child needs to make money, so I understand why they're leaving. But yeah. you know, I was just wondering. Like where did all the where where did all the kids go? And you mentioned at one point that oh they're probably you know going to the Sun Belt to work in whatever industry that's not dying. But um, it's just interesting to me that like the I I guess uh, the familial obligation that I thought was operating uh, earlier in the book like didn't like hold. Well, I think it doesn't hold sons. Basically, I think it's a gendered it's a gendered phenomenon. Uh, mm-hmm. So men emigrate, young men emigrate uh, at significantly higher rates than young women. And, you know, that's about the gendered structure of employment before the total collapse of the steel industry, right? That it was, uh, you know, manufacturing just sucked up young men out of, you know, out of high school. Uh, and once that opportunity is gone, um, uh, you know, the kind of male life course kind of goes into a certain kind of crisis and that, that triggers emigration. Women lead to some degree, obviously, but at, at much, much uh, lower rates. And, um, you know, I think meanwhile, young women, women of all ages who are still, are still in Pittsburgh, uh, I don't think that the kind of sets of, you know, reciprocal and cooperative obligations and discipline, the discipline of cooperation uh is really relaxed for them much at all. You know, there's all of these stories about um, how, you know, women are finding jobs for the first time. You know, women who have never or not regularly participated in the labor market are finding jobs in the late 70s and early 80s because male wages are going away. Um, but, you know, are then experiencing this intense double shift because, 
the same economic crisis that has cut into you know their their household income uh, is producing all kinds of demands for their domestic labor as well, right? And they have to do all of this kind of work to keep the household together, to keep it going, to take care of the elders. Uh, you know, if there are kids to watch the kids to, you know, if the husband is depressed or is, you know, and started drinking cause he lost his job. I mean, there's a million variations of this. Um, and you know, they're increasingly doing this as they are themselves becoming nursing assistants or something. Um, to some degree, the healthcare system absorbs some of those responsibilities, and that's kind of one of the mechanisms of change that the book is talking about, that uh, health insurance allows some of the caregiving burden to be institutionalized, but uh, to a significant degree, it's still operating in the domestic sphere very intensely, I think, all through the period of the book. Yeah, I mean, I'm hoping that we can talk a little bit about the the problem of insurance, um, specifically the, the political and economic pressures that led to the passage of Medicare and Medicaid. You write that by the early 60s, healthcare inflation uh, was placing care out of reach for uh, more and more people who were not working age, industrial laborers, and even, you know, to some extent diluted the effectiveness of workers' insurance. Um, and that's when federal intervention in the market began to seem necessary to meet uh, political demands for care. And I know that, you know, you, you also write that w- workers' expectation of care was a potent political force, but um, who was demanding expanded access to care for the elderly and poor in that moment and through what institutions? Did it grow out of the, you know, you mentioned that, you know, the, the old at least had a, kind of a significant kind of moral standing that they could draw on. But did this demand grow out of the ethnic community organizations and churches that you mentioned, or was this more the kind of the concern of a prescient bureaucrat that was kind of concerned about, uh, you know, healthcare being out of reach for people? Yeah, I mean, it, it doesn't. I don't think it really comes out of uh, churches or ethnic ethnic organizations or something like that to any degree that I'm aware of, uh, you know, in terms of interest group lobbies, uh, you know, what you might think of as the kind of liberal lobby of the late fifties and early sixties is certainly very important here. That's, you know, labor in a kind of leading position, but, you know, Americans for democratic action and these kinds of organizations. Um, and, uh, that story about the passage of Medicare and Medicaid, uh, I think, you know, historians and, and other scholars have told pretty well. What struck me uh, and what I think my book has to say that's new about that is to try to place that story in the context, more thoroughly in the context of uh, the healthcare economy that had emerged since World War II. Um, over, so 20 years after World War II, you have these basically the kind of invention of health insurance as something that large groups of people have through their employment – uh, and that's proliferated very directly and centrally by collective bargaining. Uh, you know, it's not literally the case that, you know, everyone gets insurance only through a union job or something, but the mechanism by which, you know, millions of people are getting health insurance who never would have had it before is collective bargaining. That's making health insurance a kind of, uh, you know, central social institution in a way that it had not been before World War II. Um it's actually through the steel industry in particular that uh, the Supreme Court decide, or the court system decides that 
uh, health insurance has is a so-called mandatory subject of collective bargaining. So every every employer collectively bargaining with employees has to discuss health insurance. Um, and, you know, that creates these pools of insured people. Uh, at one point, I, I talk about how um, by the, you know, mid-50s when the steelworkers Blue Cross plan is up and running, something like, uh, I think, 6% of all Blue Cross enrollment nationwide is uh, steel, comes from steel. Um, you know, Blue Cross being the biggest insurer in the country. Um you know, if you add in auto and rail and all these other industries, right, you're actually, it's a, just collective bargaining is an enormous part of health insurance and its creation and, and diffusion. Mm-hmm. So if you think about what that's going to do to uh, healthcare prices, right, I mean, as, as you have these plans proliferating that enable working class people to access care for the first time, um, providers upgrade their facilities, begin to provide more services, and prices go up. They raise prices. Uh, the cost of care enters into the kind of cycle of inflation that it's still basically in today. Um, so the intervention the book is making on, on the origin of Medicare and Medicaid is just to say, most simply, uh, the establishment of widespread health insurance creates the political demand creates economic conditions that lead to the political demand for ensuring the elderly and the poor. These two people, these two groups of people who are left out by this, by the routing of insurance through employment. Um, and that's why the way I tell the story is that, you know, by the late fifties, everyone kind of understands that there's going to have to be some reform on this score. The actual specifics of the way the bill is worked out, uh, which is not a story I tell in detail, um, you know, that is much more amenable to the kind of lobbying of different different interest groups and, you know, the influence of particular congressmen and aides and this kind of thing. But uh, what I really think is that there's a structural condition that's been laid down already that makes reform in that particular political context more or less inevitable. Um, and, you know, I think we also can relate it to the idea that I, I take from a German scholar named Martin Coley. Um, of an institutionalized life course being established by the New Deal state. Um, The Committee for Economic Security, which authored the Social Security Act in the 1930s, refers to the idea of a, quote, normal working life, right? This is something that's invented by the New Deal, the idea that the working life has a sort of fixed cycle um, and, you know, that ends in retirement, right? And this is embedded also in the principle of seniority being really central to collective bargaining. Um, and it's embedded in another way in how more labor market marginalized people, uh, poorer people who don't work or have access to employment where you can steadily stay in your job and accumulate seniority and retire stably, um, right? They, they also are locked out of this kind of normative life course. Um, so once the new deal is kind of built out around this principle, right around seniority, around the idea that you pass through a certain cycle over the course of your life, um, that's institutionalized. Once it's institutionalized and organized around that, uh, it then that generates the political problems on the margins that, uh, you know, in a moment like the sixties, 
social movements and you know liberal activist forces are kind of powerful enough to then d- demand a response for. But I'll just finish this answer by saying uh, Medicare and Medicaid are most significant in, in my book, not for where they come from, but for the effects that they have, the way they feed back into the healthcare system and really the whole economy in places like Pittsburgh. Thank you. Um, yeah, I mean, kind of moving on to the next moment where the um, kind of, I guess, the the, the next big cha- or one of the next big changes in the, the provision of health care, I think, would be, you know, the birth of these um, these hospital kind of con- regional or local hospital like kind of construction authorities that allow hospitals to build on debt. Um, I think in it was 71 when Allegheny County established their the Hospital Development Authority. Uh, and I was wondering if you could talk about like where those, who are those bondholders? Are they regional financiers that are, I guess, that end up on hospitals, board of directors, people who used to be invested in steel companies? Um, or is this money coming from further away? Um, because, it, you know, they are, they are alongside consumers, uh, one of the main, I guess, parties driving this inflationary cycle that you describe. Yeah. So, um, I mean, I guess to take, take a step back before answering that, part of the argument of the book or key argument of the book is that uh, organized working class populations produce huge healthcare markets first through their own benefits, their own, you know, blue cross or whatever. Um, and then second, as they age and as those popu- as those regions shift demographically, uh, through Medicare as well. And that leads to ultimately very high rates of use of the system, uh, of the healthcare system and leads to its expansion. The mechanism of that expansion, as you're saying, uh, is, is debt. So previous to 1970 or so, if a hospital wanted to acquire a, you know, expensive piece of equipment or build a new wing or whatever, uh, it, you know, it might kind of finance it somewhat through retained revenue. It might solicit a gift from a donor. Uh, it might borrow a little bit. After the late 60s, that balance shifts very, very heavily toward borrowing from, I think debt goes from being off the top of my head, something like, you know, 10 or 20% of uh, hospital capital financing to uh, over 70% in a very short period of time. That in many cases relies on uh, the development of local institutions to give hospitals access to municipal bond markets. So in this case, uh, Allegheny County, which Pittsburgh sits inside, creates an authority, a county authority that uh, can can issue bonds and then, you know, do it basically on behalf of hospitals. So they like, you know, municipal bonds in general, right? They're, they're, they have a tax subsidy. Um, and in the aftermath in particular of the passage of Medicare and Medicaid, uh, it's, it's extremely safe debt. It's, you know, there's a I mean, the, the health insurance system through Medicare and Medicaid in particular and, you know, collectively bargained health insurance more broadly is a virtually guaranteed income stream to service this debt. 
Um, the bondholders generally, to answer your question in particular that I don't really get into in the book, um, are there's not, I tried and would have loved if I could have found a kind of very neat story about how manufacturing capital kind of, you know, shifts itself into hospital capital through this mechanism. Um, Mm -hmm. that doesn't seem to be particularly, I'm sure there are examples of that, but that doesn't seem to be particularly the case. Uh, rather, you know, it's basically just the municipal bond market. I mean, it's, uh, it's the, you know, the county hospital authority is basically like a very safe city budget, basically, or, you know, uh, you know, city fiscal agency. Um, and, you know, the, the bonds are floated in, you know, in, in Philadelphia and wherever and, and, and bought by, I don't know who in general, like it seems to be, um, you know, they're advertised through investment banks and whether they are, and they seem to be bought pretty in a pretty diffuse way. Um, so I don't think there's a particular agent that we can identify as the mm-hmm. kind of, besides the banks that are, are um, you know, facilitating the floating of the bonds. Uh, but I don't think that the creditors are embody a particular agency, um, you know, a particular social group or something like that. Uh, rather, what's happening is, that the demand is insatiable and that means that for the hospital hospital management hospital administration there's virtually no reason not to borrow and grow and you know because that credit is so secure because of the because of the insatiability and you know the public subsidy of demand um that growth just like proceeds very rapidly uh and in particular then after in 1979 uh the Fed tries to tackle inflation, does tackle inflation in some ways by raising interest rates, right? The Volcker shock, um, which is seen as a kind of onset of neoliberalism, uh, that really rapidly increases the rate of investment in hospital capital, um, you know, driving up of interest rates, right? It makes, it, it, it makes those bonds, uh, more valuable, essentially, and causes more, you know, so in the, in this moment where, you know, the increase of interest rates and the, you know, the deflation of the economy is absolutely devastating for manufacturing, uh, it counter-cyclically rapidly inflates the healthcare industry. Um, and that's really the kind of key moment when healthcare employment passes uh, manufacturing employment or steel employment. There's that one very kind of evocative moment, I think, later in the book where the um, some hospital, you know, branches out and starts, say, kind of a, a home, like a, a nursing home in what used to be like an old mill. And I was like, well, the, the, there you have it, like very, very, um, um, you know very striking symbolism of like the essential dynamic of the book. You, you found one of those. Great. Yeah. Um, right. It's, I mean, it couldn't be, it couldn't be uh, clearer than that moment. Yeah. Um, I guess. So, you know, the controlling costs is basically, you know, it's controlling health care costs is still a, um, you know, it's an economic and political problem that like it still gets discussed today. And like you said in, like you write in the, in the, um, you know, the kind of concluding part of the book, it's something that, you know, political leaders learn to basically not 
kind of challenge the fundamental precepts of the system. Um, but I'm, I'm wondering if that is, you know, the, the kind of the drive to the drive to kind of understand or to apply a technocratic fix to the problem of costs um, is part of what produces this kind of health policy archive that you're that you're that you're drawing on in the letter part of the book. You know all these like healthcare studies, and I was reading about how you know the federal government. You know before the period you just described, like in the '60s and '70s, and maybe to some extent in the eighties was funding the expansion of public health education. And not all of that is directly has to do with kind of like policy and finance and administration, but I imagine a good part of it does. And it's just interesting to, you know, it's another one of those moments where the, the problem is being kind of um, the problem is being constituted in the events that you're, um, you know, in the very kind of archival record that you're um, that you're looking at. Yeah, um, absolutely. I mean, you know, there's a, I guess, a deep underlying structural problem uh, with industries like healthcare in, in, you know, in capitalist societies, which are that you can't really figure out how to provide them uh, profitably, really, over the long term. I mean, individual, you know, agents and firms can in a given moment, but over the long term, it's very difficult to do. Um, because they don't really, uh, you know, participate in the kind of fundamental capitalist dynamic of steady productivity increase. Um, and, you know, again, they may have you know, episodes where they figure out how to do something in a kind of more productive way, but they, they, they don't steadily uh, become more productive because of the nature of the service they provide, right, which is human to human. Um, so there's that kind of structural underlying problem, which really animates a lot of the story of the book. But then within that, right, uh, you have all of these kind of social processes and political struggles over the role of care in society, uh, who deserves it, who should get it, how should they get it, under what circumstances. You know, this shakes out through insurance systems, through social policy, through collective bargaining. And um, interacts with the rising cost dynamic over and over and over again. And that, yeah, you're right. That does generate an archive in a certain way. The clearest example of this is um, a group of paper, a collection of papers I worked with called from an agency called the health systems agency of Western, Southwestern Pennsylvania. Um, basically, uh, you know, many cities in the post-war period had something called uh, in Pittsburgh's case, it was called the hospital council different names in different places, but a kind of voluntary, non-governmental, you know, more or less sort of industry group for local hospitals, um, which would try to speak on behalf of the kind of, you know, the corporate collective interest of, of that group, uh, which meant trying to control costs, right? I mean, the, the individual institutions are interested in soaking up as much cost as they can, um, right? Because costs for hospitals in this period are revenue. Uh, they get reimbursed by the insurer. But uh, collectively, they understand it's a problem, and so they're all trying to kind of, you know, maneuver a collective solution that's best for them individually. Over time, uh, the federal government gives more and more responsibility to these kinds of organizations to actually police each other, to police their members. Uh, so it goes from being called the hospital council to being the health systems agency in the 70s, 
uh, and is charged by the federal government, as these agencies are all over the country, with um, vetting and approving any proposed hospital capital program over $100,000. Um, files and files and files of, uh, you know, applications for approval from, you know, everything from we want to buy this machine to we want to build a whole new hospital. And uh, what's interesting about it is that this then becomes, as you would expect, a kind of arena of political conflict to some degree, because, um, you know, there are these powerful forces that, that want the new hospital to be built or whatever, right? And that's, that's the bondholders, whoever they are, the potential bondholders, uh, right? But the bond market. Um, and it's also a local patient community that, you know, thinks that their hospital should be renovated and is run down and, you know, you need to provide this new service that the one next door provides and so on. Uh, and it's the politicians who are accountable to that population that, you know, the catchment area, right? And on the other side is this kind of technocratic agency whose job is to try to assess, do we really need this new machine or this new service or this new wing of this hospital? Um, and generally, I mean, they do reject some projects, uh, but generally they more or less tend to come under severe popular pressure to approve them and then approve them. Um, because it's this me- it's this strange mechanism for trying to do, you know, capital planning and industry industrial planning um, with the capital itself still being in private hands and the consumption being, you know, routed through the private sector they try to insert this public check into it and it basically just gets swept under by these kind of popular and economic forces. Um, and so these, these provided very interesting documents to read, you know, the story of each proposal kind of getting considered, resisted, and then ultimately approved. Yeah. I mean, I related to that, the, you know, it, it seems like, you know, one of the, you know, there, there's, as you mentioned, the, the the kind of the economic imperative to to build it, you know, to to make good on the bonds, but also the um, the, the the demand by communities and the demand by patients who you know want services that they ultimately in in some form, I mean, depending on who they are, um, won't be. And depending on their level of insurance, won't be paying for, and the kind of the desirability of the the desirability of the kind of of the growth of the industry, as you mentioned in at several uh, points in the book, is kind of based on the premise that you know we get to reap these services uh, with the with the low wages of, of 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 care workers, and you know I'm. And you 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 gesture in the introduction to kind of the the, the bridge that could be that could be built between um, care, care workers who are not you know having their needs met and who are you know socially devalued and and patients who are often um, dealing with the same thing due to the fact that they can't get good care and they're also being disposed of in some way and. Um, I guess the, the the kind of the the political um, the, the the social 
problem that has political implications is is the kind of um you know this patient worker solidarity that you're that that you're kind of like uh kind of hopefully gesturing towards and i think in a way similar to similar to the um militancy in in teachers unions at least in some places about you know uh students learning conditions or our working conditions and i'm i you know not not to be too presentist but you you know I, i'm sure that the I'm, I'm sure the press had you uh um or you know either you or someone at the press felt compelled to you know um comment on on our current moment and i guess the the, the last decade of intensified um care worker activism but i i mean i'm I'm wondering if you know it, it. It seemed at points like this this cycle just co- just could continue, to, like ad infinitum. Um, but of, of course, you know it 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 can't it can't do so because of you know uh, you know people for whatever reason people have their uh, um, people will organize against the, the the very conditions that that make the kind of that make it make this kind of healthcare the, the growth of the healthcare system fiscally feasible. Um, so I'm, I, I'm wondering, kind of relating this research to maybe other things you've written in a, a more kind of contemporary journalistic mode. Um, yeah, I mean, is there? Uh, do you see anything other than some, you know, some kind of like? Uh, you know, tra- some kind of transhistorical uh, uh, like bo- bond that will develop between uh, or transhistorical kind of like element of goodwill that develops between these two these two kind of like populations, which you know is partially what you're arguing against. Like, like structurally, do you see anything that kind of would um, inc- I guess encourage the kind of worker patient solidarity that you're talking about yeah absolutely uh i mean it's in some way that's what the book is sort of written to try to uncover the possibility of and the you know uh incipient reality of i would say um you know most fundamentally the book argues that economic displacement and economic inequality have been funneled to a significant degree into the healthcare system, right? That the healthcare system has grown uh, to a significant degree because it's taken on these functions of managing uh, the economic displacement and inequality of the last 40 years. Uh, That growth uh, and that increase in capacity, you know, has sometimes in significant ways meant real uh, provision of care for people funneled, you know, sort of sucked into the system as patients uh, but not only or straightforwardly, because the associated cost growth also generates a kind of austerity counter-reaction. Um, and at the center of th- those uh, sort of shearing and contradictory forces is the healthcare worker, who both has to carry out the function of, you know, keeping a sort of stressed, uh, economically and socially stressed population alive through their job every day. Uh, while also bearing the kind of immediate brunt of the austerity that has come into place to try to manage the costs of that. Uh, And that has made care workers 
collectively indispensable and individually disposable. And that contradiction is the source, the book argues ultimately, is the source of their kind of potential collective power. Um, so I certainly don't think there's anything transhistorical about it. I think rather it has to do with the kind of particular way that American institutions have channeled a set of larger economic and social forces into the shape of a, you know, our own our own misshapen healthcare system, uh, and in doing so, triggered a process of class formation. Um, that process, I think, develops as a growing portion of the population is in some way cut up with the health, in the healthcare system, right? Needs it for our our survival and social reproduction as it's taken on this growing social role. Um, you know, more and more kind of forms of social inequality and exclusion have become medicalized in different ways, you know, through addiction, through aging processes, through disability, through all kinds of mechanisms, but the medicalization of inequality grows the footprint of the healthcare system. It means that the more and more of the working class is caught up in it as patients and simultaneously more and more as employees. So healthcare and social assistance today, which is the census category, is the largest sector of employment in the country. Um, it's about 14% of all jobs. Um, if you add, you know, healthcare is its kind of uh, sister category, which is, uh, I think, sorry, education, I mean, is healthcare sister ca- category. And it's, I think, about t- around 10. So the two together are, uh, healthcare and education together are about one in four jobs in America. Um, you're right that I took significant inspiration from watching the development of the teachers movement over the last few years. And in particular, the ways in which teachers, uh, were revealed to have real social power, both because of the dependency of their communities on them. Right. I mean, just for childcare essentially. Um, and also as the kind of, uh, most significant, stably employed group in many places like in West Virginia, because it's a public function that has to be provided. Um, right. Even as everyone else loses their jobs, teachers are there. And so I saw that and tried to think about what, in what ways is healthcare kind of parallel to that, um, in some ways exceeding it, right. It's bigger in size actually, but also it's different in structure and in, in different, in different ways. Um, so yes, the gambit of the book or the kind of political gambit of the book is that, uh, we can see here the kind of dimensions of a, class formation process, I would argue it's, you know, it's, I'm not just uh, hoping for, but I think it's underway, you know, in, in, in important ways already. Um, and, you know, certainly the kind of resistance of so-called essential workers uh, over the last year to, you know, the ways in which they have been exploited and endangered, uh, I think, really crystallizes that in important ways, right? The way that we call people essential and treat them as innocent, right? We, or we, we, they are essential. We depend on them uh, and require them to be in a certain role that also, you know, endangers them, but we don't care, right? Um, collectively, or we act as though we don't care. Um, and I think that really kind of condenses the kind of larger contradiction that the whole book is about of how this group has become both indispensable and disposable, um, so, you know, I'm not going to make a prediction about what's going to happen. I think there are a lot of reasons why, uh, the, the healthcare industry has not produced a kind of, uh, movement as dramatic 
as the teachers movement that has to do with um, the way that healthcare is mainly privately provided, although it's, you know, publicly funded, it's privately administered as opposed to education, which is much more heavily publicly provided. So teachers are public employees and, you know, most hospital workers are not. Um, it's much more stratified. Healthcare is much more stratified than education by skill or so-called skill, you know, that from, from doctors, uh, you know, down to nursing assistants and custodians is a, you know, it's a much wider, uh, di- dispersal, uh, and that maps onto race and onto gender and onto income most obviously. Um, so the idea of all of those people kind of coming together is, you know, it's not impossible, but it's rarer, um, harder to achieve. And that in turn also has led to, um, organizational fragmentation, uh, you know, such that doctors have their own organization, right? Which is not a union generally, but it's a professional guild. Uh, you know, nurses often do have their own unions or sometimes not, and are also kind of professionally oriented. Uh, and then service and, you know, maintenance and sometimes tactical workers are sort of organized separately still. Um, whereas generally in a school system, you know, basically, you, I mean, you have a teacher's union and then maybe also like the custodial workers and security guards have a union, but it's much more condensed. Uh, so, you know, that also makes it harder for healthcare workers or has made it harder for healthcare workers to carry out the function in the politics of healthcare that teachers have carried out in the politics of education, which is to say, our working conditions are your learning or healing conditions because they don't speak as one voice of the whole system as a whole um, in the way that teachers can. So I think that... uh, I mean, I imagine that the... uh... Yeah, any any attempt to do that would uh, would kind of fall upon the, or it would it, it would it would be met with the the rejoinder by by others in the healthcare system that I guess it would it, it would turn into like a, a fight over um, like I I guess you'd have a kind of a, a, a conflict over like what really constitutes care too, because as you mentioned, like, I mean, a lot of, a lot of very like remunerative medicine is based on a kind of, you know, a very, you know, obviously a, a, acute or like intensive interventions into acute medical problems are important. But I think one thing that we didn't get into, but we certainly could have was, you know, uh, I think one of the one of the consequences of um, health insurance being t- that the kind of health insurance being provided through collective bargaining, as you know, people uh, like Jen Klein have written about, was that it narrowed like it narrowed our like the consent or it narrowed society's sense of like what what healthcare could be. Um, like driving it away from like social environmental factors. So I would just be not, not that I'm wishing for like a, uh, you know, a fight or a, a kind of, uh, or some kind of, some kind of, um, conflict over, you know, what constitutes real care. But I think that, I think that too is that question is, is, was, is being politically contested in the period that you wrote about and even before. Yeah, absolutely. Well, so Jen Klein was my was my advisor in grad school, um, and you're you're right to see that kind of line of influence. Um, you know, 
um, I think what you're saying is kind of reflective of the large, you know, the multiple constituencies that get what they need in some way out of the healthcare system as it functions, even though it's so in total, incredibly dysfunctional and harmful, right? Uh, I mean, this is something that health economists and health policy people, I think rightly have been saying for a long time, that the healthcare system is hard to reform because many, many different constituencies in some way get what they need out of it. And even if there were kind of like, uh, you know, positive some higher equilibrium that would be better for almost everyone um, in some way, not almost everyone, not insurance companies, but for many, many of these constituencies, it's very hard to get from here to there because, uh, you know, the negotiation among so many different constituencies that are currently getting something that they need out of the healthcare system is very hard to achieve. Uh, And that's why healthcare reform programs have typically proceeded by trying to buy off, you know, significant existing constituencies to assemble a coalition to then, you know, defeat some others. Uh, Obamacare most famously, right, tried to basically buy off the health health insurance industry. Medicare Part D, the reform under George W. Bush, you know, was an effort to buy off the prescription drug industry, similarly. Um, And that necessarily shapes the content and meaning of care uh, in terms of patient experience, in terms of, you know, the labor process day to day for workers um, and produces the space in which solidarity can occur or not occur. Um, you know, I, I think it's nonetheless true that, um, there is, so there's that kind of ongoing cycle, but there's also this deeper structural dynamic in which healthcare gradually eats the economy. And, uh, you know, that nobody has really figured out how to resist actually. And that just goes and goes and goes. And I should say it goes most dramatically in post-industrial places. So the book kind of starts out by, with with a chart of, um, the cities in the country where healthcare is, you know, the largest sector of employment, or sorry, cities in the country ranked by by how large a sector of employment healthcare is. And the top ones, I'll just read them, are the Bronx, Philadelphia, New Haven, Cleveland, Brooklyn, Pittsburgh, Boston, Newark, Rochester, Worcester, Lynn, Hartford, Quincy, St. Louis, Queens, Milwaukee, Yonkers, Buffalo. You get it, right? There's no, it's all post-industrial north, northern and Midwestern cities. Um, this process has proceeded to its furthest extent in places where the economic transformation since the seventies has been most dramatic. Uh, the downward economic pressure since the seventies has been most dramatic. And that is not abating. Uh, there's no sign of it abating and it's hard to see how it would without some significant political change. Uh, so what that means is that, uh, there is a kind of deep tectonic force producing a possibility of solidarity, you know, across different occupational lines and, you know, kind of across the patient, uh, patient and provider line, potentially that is rooted in both the growth of this system, our growing reliance on it, and also the constant pressure of austerity on it and how to actually negotiate and realize that possibility is then determined by these kind of more specific questions of, uh, you know, the institutional organization of care, who benefits from what and what it means in a particular moment to different constituencies. That's helpful. I mean, I think 
ha- having it framed like that, like the two problems, like the 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 austerity or the downward, like the the downward kind of economic pressure that is that is making um, that is making care and providing care so onerous and the demand for care are go like that's not both neither of those things are are contingent uh uh and the, uh, and so i guess the the question of contingency becomes like how how does the collision of those two uh, processes play out and not like will this get more severe right. um yeah, yeah i mean you know, the, uh the dynamic of deindustrialization and its its driving of a growth process of uh, low wage service sector employment is a like deep structural dynamic shared across uh, much of the world, in fact, um, and its channeling through particular institutions and its manifestation in particular patterns of solidarity and conflict is then worked out. Uh, contingently through political organization and conflict. Well, I'm glad that you've brought us up to the present moment. And unfortunately, we can't do a, well, I guess we, we, we can do a history of the present, but we definitely can't do a history of the future. Um, uh, so, and we're coming up on our time. So I'd like to uh, conclude with um, just a question about what you're working on now. Yeah. Um, well, unfortunately, I'm not really doing much work at the moment like, like anybody else, but I've kind of started on a new project on the sort of revisiting, I guess, what we could call the age of reform, although, you know, I don't really share the Hofstadter framing in any way. Um, but I'm interested, as I was alluding earlier in our conversation, I'm interested in why and how it came to be that uh, the New Deal state took on all of these sort of normatively conservative dimensions alongside its project of, um, you know, redistribution and regulate of wealth and regulation of the economy. And what, what is the fit between those actually? Right. And, you know, we, uh, I think we kind of now understand and accept that it was an uneven and, you know, uh, exclusive as well as inclusive formation. Um, but I don't think we have a, totally satisfactory story about uh, why it was that, and to put it in a strong form, uh, regulating the American economy in the way that they did, that the New Dealers did, increasing effective demand, uh, you know, stabilizing the business cycle, required organizing the population into families of a certain structure and uh, organizing those families racially in a particular pattern. Um, so what I would like to do in other words, is to take the literature like Margaret Candidate's straight state, like, uh, in pursuit of equity by Kessler Harris, like, uh, all the, all the excellent literature, like Katz Nelson and so on, on, uh, and Segru's work on the racial exclusion of the new deal and try to actually connect it, um, to the political economy of the transition to a kind of mass consumption economy. Um, and I take a lot of inspiration here, uh, from Melinda Cooper's book, Family Values, uh, which is about a later period, about the sixties and seventies. Um, but, you know, argues that neoliberalism and neoconservatism shared an agenda. They were different in various ways, but shared an agenda of, um, 
rehabilitating familial responsibility in a variety of ways as an economic, as an economic project. Um, and so I'm trying to understand, I guess, how, uh, the family got organized and constituted and then racialized also as a kind of core component of the establishment of, you know, the, the liberal redistributive state. Um, and I'm still figuring out a lot of what that means, but that is the goal. That sounds fantastic. And I look forward to, uh, reading it and, um, Thanks again for joining me today. I've really enjoyed our conversation. Thanks a lot, Patrick. Nice talking to you.